This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. I want to invite you guys to turn to the book of Esther. So we began a new series in Esther. Go really, really have enjoyed uh, walking through uh, Esther t- together. Uh, we're, we're seeing just how how that and every part of the Old Testament really points to Jesus. We're, we're seeing how, as as we just sung, that that God is sovereign, that He's at work in our lives, that He's He's holding our our lives and our future in His in His hands. And we're gonna see that so clearly today um, in in Esther. So we're gonna look today at chapter three and verse seven and move through chapter four. And I've entitled this message Walking with Destiny. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as we begin in chapter 3 and verse 7. And kind of to set things up here, what, what has happened is that, um, is that Haman has issued this, this decree of annihilation against the Jewish people. And so this, this death sentence has gone out. Um, and then we, we pick it up here, beginning in verse 7. Esther 3, beginning with verse 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman of Hamadatha the Agadite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text 
issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left spurred on by royal command and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you were in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Father, we thank you for the way we see you working in your word, and in lives. And we pray that you would do your work today as we dig into your word, as we see the principles here for our lives. And as Christ is lifted up, will we be drawn to him. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. On the 10th day, the 10th of May, 1940, Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And to say that this was a moment of crisis 
would be a vast understatement because earlier that same day, May 10th, 1940, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany had unleashed a blitzkrieg against Western Europe. They had attacked France and the Low Countries, and everyone knew that Great Britain would be next. For years, Winston Churchill had pleaded with his colleagues in the British Parliament to take a stand against Hitler. Churchill saw Hitler's anti-Semitism uh, and, and, and Nazi Germany's militarism as a, as a growing malignant threat of evil that had to be stopped. Unfortunately, throughout the 1930s, Churchill was virtually alone in the British Parliament in saying that. People thought he was irrational. They thought he was an alarmist. They thought he was some kind of a kook. But now, to their shock and their horror, Churchill had been proven right. And those same colleagues turned to him to be the British Prime Minister. And Churchill later wrote about his feelings on that day as he came into office. Churchill said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. In other words, Churchill was saying, I felt as if I had come into this position for such a time as this. Well, centuries before, in ancient Persia, another anti-Semite had issued a decree of annihilation against the Jewish people. Haman was the Hitler of his day. But God had placed a Jewish orphan girl in the position of being the queen of Persia. What was Esther going to do with her position? Would Esther come to see that she was walking with destiny and that God had put her in that position for that time? And what principles can we learn from this? Well, first of all, we see in, in our text today that we are in the hands of God, not chance. We are in the hands of God, not chance. If you want to take notes today, if you're new here, we have the, we have the outline on the back of your bulletin. But the first point is that we are in the hands of God, not chance. Let's look at verse 7 of chapter 3. The Bible says, In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day of each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. So Haman is seeking the ideal day to carry out this massacre of the Jewish people. And so he gets all of the magicians of Persia together, and so they, they cast these, uh, these lots. And really it was sort of like rolling the dice. In fact, 
archaeologists have, have found ancient uh, Purim would be the plural of uh, Pur was, was, was Lot. Purim is the plural of, of that. Archaeologists have found ancient Purim from this time, and they were little clay cubes with dots on them. <laughs> they look exactly like modern-day dice. Now, when we think about rolling the dice, we think about chance, it's even crept into our language, right? When we, when we say, hey, well, roll the dice and see what happens. Take a chance. But were the lives of God's people really in the hands of chance? Are the lives of God's people today in the hands of chance? Well, there are many people who would like for you to believe that. There are many people who would like for kids to believe from, from the earliest ages that they were just created by chance and that this whole world was created by chance. But the biblical worldview tells another story. The Bible says in the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God created you Psalm 139 and verse 13 says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The Bible teaches that, that, that human life begins at conception, which of course has huge implications for how we view something like abortion. But it teaches that, that human life begins at the moment of conception and that, that God, in that very moment, is intricately involved. That God knits us together in, in the wombs of our, of our mothers. But, but not only does the Bible teach that human life is created by God and that it begins at conception, it says that God has a plan for us even before our conception. Psalm 139 and verse 16 says, Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and plan before a single one of them began. You are not an accident. You are not a product of chance. You were created by God and for God. And, and, and that was the case with the Jewish people in the Old Testament. God had created them for a special purpose. And we see in Genesis chapter 12 what that purpose was. When God first creates the Jewish people, what does he say to Abraham? He says, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. As we've been talking about in this series, God creates the special people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and he says, through you, through this people, I'm going to bless all peoples. And of course, ultimately, the way that he was going to do that is that from this people, he was going to bring the Christ, the Messiah, who was Messiah of Israel and Lord of the world, Jesus. Jesus was going to come from this people. And so God was invested in this people. And God was going to preserve and protect this people because the Savior was coming from this people. 
So listen, Haman can roll the dice all that he wants to, but the lives of God's people then and now are in his hands. David says in Psalm 16, five and six, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Our lives are in the hands of God and not chance. Second, God is our protector. God is our protector. Now in verses eight through 13, what we see here is that Haman makes this accusation against the Jews that is accepted by the king. He signs off on it. He hands over his signet ring, which was a symbol of executive authority. They send out all of the orders. They're they're all delivered to the people throughout uh, the Persian Empire that the Jews are to be slaughtered on this day. It is sealed. I mean, it is literally signed, sealed, and delivered. Airtight. But God. But God. You see, we have a God who can not only protect his people, but he makes the schemes of evildoers come down ultimately on their own heads. Psalm 141 and verse 10 says, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. That is exactly how we're going to see the story of Esther play now. Haman's evil scheme is going to come down on his own head. He is going to fall into his own net. And God's people are going to be delivered. They will pass by safely. Now speaking of passing by, there's a great irony here. And we see it in verse 13. It says letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. You know what day that was? It was the day before Passover. What was Passover about? Passover was the day that the Jewish people will remember God's great deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. God told them to take special lambs without blemish and to slaughter those lambs and to eat a special Passover meal with those lambs and take the blood of those lambs and put the blood on the sides and the top of their doors and the death angel that night would pass by their home. He would pass over their home and they would be delivered. But of course, the blood of those Passover lambs pointed to the lamb, Jesus. When John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching in John 129, he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so just as the people that night 
the night of Passover were, 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 were spared from death because of the blood of those lambs which pointed to Christ, the Jewish people are going to be spared the worst in the story because ultimately Christ was going to allow the worst to converge on him. And we too can be spared from the worst, from sin and death, because Christ allowed sin and death to do its worst to him. Christ said, put it on me so that we could be spared. There's something else here that we, we need to see in the story. It's obvious that the Jewish people had an enemy, Haman. Well, God's people today have an enemy. 1 Peter 5 and verses 8 and 9 tells us about that enemy. It says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith. You see, as believers, we have placed our faith in the one who has already crushed the serpent's head. And so, therefore, victory is not only possible, victory has already been won. What we have to do is make sure we've attached ourselves closely to the victor. And the enemy can't touch us. God is our protector. Third principle, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. We, we have seen throughout the story of Esther the sovereignty of God. But yet one of the ways that God exercises his sovereignty in this world is by answering the prayers of his people. What, what do they do when this decree comes down against the Jewish people? What does Mordecai do? Look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried out loudly and bitterly. The, these were all signs when someone was, 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 was in crisis and praying. Mordecai immediately fasted and, and prayed. What did the Jewish people do? Look at verse 3. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They are coming together as a community to plead with God. God, we need a miracle. We're, we're coming before you. What, is, what does Esther do? Look at verse 16. Esther says, when she hears about this, she says, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. And so Esther is saying, and not only me and my, my female servants, but I want, I want all the Jewish people to be fasting and praying with us. It's very important that we have a community who can pray with us. It's called a church. It's so beautiful when we, we see people in our church who, are, who, are, who, are, who find themselves in need or who are in some kind of a painful crisis. Just seeing this at work time and time and time again. I've seen it this week. 
where a brother or sister is in crisis and the people of this church come around them. They come around that person in love and you're there for them and you're praying with them. Oh, we need a church family. And the Jewish people here needed a miracle. They knew the, our only hope is for a miracle. But listen, our only hope is for a miracle. The sentence of death because of our sin has come down upon us too. And to be delivered from that sentence. The sentence that our sins deserve, we need a miracle. Well, guess what? God's in the miracle working business. He's given a miracle called resurrection. We have a risen savior. And when someone gets saved today, what happens? It's resurrection. They are raised spiritually. Ephesians 2 and verses 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Now listen. If God has already performed the greatest miracle in our lives, which is salvation, being, being raised from death to life in a spiritual sense, if he's already done that miracle in our lives, what makes you think that God can't answer any other prayer or do any other miracle? He's already done the greatest thing. There's a fourth principle that we see in this text, and that is that God's love is better than life. God's love is better than life. David says in Psalm 63 in verse 3, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. And Esther has come to the point in her life where she has to decide, do I really believe this? Am I willing to risk my life to glorify God? Mordecai sends word to her about this decree of annihilation against the Jewish people. And, and she responds in, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Now, this is really ominous. Because not only would it be an automatic death penalty to appear before him, him unsummoned, but she hasn't been summoned for a month. Now, given what we know about King Ahasuerus, he was, he was certainly anything but monogamous. He had hundreds or even thousands of women at his disposal, and, and he has not summoned Esther for some time. And so she sends this word back to, 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 to Mordecai about the meaning of this. And Mordecai responds in verses 13 and 14. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think 
that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you were in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, there are three really important things here that we need to see about Mordecai's reply. First of all, Mordecai is saying to Esther, listen, if you do the right thing here, then it's true, you may die. But if you don't do the right thing, you will certainly die because disobedience to God will come at a cost. And there's no way that you can continue hiding the fact that you're Jewish. They're going to know. You're going to end up dying anyway. And listen, there's a word here for us. We think about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship. And that's true. You know, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There is a cost to following Jesus. But think about the cost of non-discipleship. Think about the cost of not following Jesus. You see, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. The cost of not following Jesus is ultimately eternal death hell. Second, Mordecai has a rock-solid faith in the promises of God. Mordecai says to her, look, if you don't do the right thing here, then God can still deliver his people. One way or the other, God is going to deliver his people. Why does he say that? Because Mordecai is trusting in the promises of God, the covenant promises of God that he has made to the Jewish people to, to preserve them. Mordecai's faith in that is rock solid. He says to Esther, listen, if, if, if you don't allow God to work through you for our deliverance, he's going to work in another way. And again, there's a word here, for us. Just because we, we disobey God doesn't mean that God is not going to fulfill his purposes. You know, I think about the Great Commission. I think about the promise that has been made that one day around the throne, there are going to be people from every tribe and tongue that are going to be worshiping Christ. And Jesus has given us a great commission to go to every tribe and tongue throughout the world with the good news of the gospel. But you know what? If, we, if, if the American church just kind of opts out of the great commission and we say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to be a part of that. We're going we're gonna to do our own thing. We're not going to go. We're not going to give. We're not going to do any of that. Do you really think that God's promise that every tribe and tongue are going to be worshiping Jesus, do you really think that's going to fall to the ground? No. God will raise up an army of missionaries from South Korea or Iran or Latin America or Africa or whatever to get his job done and to fulfill his promises. You know the worst thing about sin? It's not the pain that sin brings into our own lives, as awful as that is, and it's awful. The worst thing about disobeying God is that you miss out on the good things that could have happened. 
you miss out on what life could be and should be when you allow God to work through your life and use you as his instrument. The third thing that we see here is that Mordecai is, is saying to her, and you know, he's talking to his adopted daughter here, right? He, he, he loves her. And this, his words, there's a tenderness here, but there's a firmness here at the same time. And that is, you know, he's saying, honey, God has put you where you are in the position that you're in for such a time as this. And there's a word here for us. It's no accident that you were born in the situation you were born in, where you were born in, and the family that you were born in, and the church that you're in, and the job that you work in, and the school that you go to. It makes against us that we are sinners certainly is true. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God would be well within his rights to accept the devil's accusation and to sign off on it and render a sentence of death against us. That is what we have earned because of our sins. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. God could have signed off on our death sentence. Instead, he gave his son. God gave the precious signet ring of his son, his beloved son, to take our sins upon himself on the cross and to defeat death in our place through the resurrection. And for that reason, the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that although the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid says this, we all deserve to die on account of our transgressions. We have all earned the wages of our sin, but by God's grace, those in Christ have that awful sentence lifted because he has taken their place. To us comes the glorious good news of the free gift of God, which is eternal life in his son. There is grace that extends as widely as our sins and promises us mercy and acceptance for Christ's sake. What a God we serve. What a gospel we have to declare. What a Christ we follow. Amen. Let's pray together. Are you a follower of Christ? We've seen his great love. We've seen his love for sinners like you and me and taking our sins upon himself and rising from the dead. Have you turned from your sins to Jesus, to trust him, to receive him into your life as Savior and Lord, to follow him? Jesus invites you to follow him today. Right now, in the quietness of your heart, 
turn to Jesus and trust him. As a follower of Jesus now, what is God saying to you? What's, what's the word that God has spoken to you through his word today? What's the, what's the commitment? What's the point of surrender that God is calling you to today as his follower? Is there something that you need to yield to him to surrender to him? In a few moments, we're going to stand and sing. And I want to invite you. Sometimes it helps to, to mark a moment physically. And it, that could be the case with you. Maybe there's something that you just want to surrender to the Lord. And maybe it would be helpful for you to come and, and pray at this altar or to pray with a pastor, or, or if you're here today and you're giving your life to Christ, Jesus commands us to, to, to make that publicly, to confess him before others. And if you're saying today, today I'm following Jesus, then we want to invite you to make that public. And as we stand and sing, myself and the other pastors, we'll, we'll be here at the front. You can come and and share with us what, what God's speaking to you about today. So Father, we give you this time, and we pray that you would work and move, and that you would have your way in our lives today. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.